Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am peachy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, longtime New York Times critic A.O. Scott uh, is giving up his gig in returning to the world of literary criticism from whence he came. Uh, In his exit interview, Scott talked about his viewing habits. He sees around 300 movies a year, which is a lot for a normal person, but he feels is an inadequate number to really get the full breadth of the movie calendar. Um, And he lodged a very specific complaint against the rise of fandom. I'm going to, there's a kind of a long quote here. I'm going to read the whole thing. So just bear with me. Quote, I'm not a fan of modern fandom. This isn't only because I've been swarmed on Twitter by angry devotees of Marvel and DC and more recently, Top Gun Maverick and everything everywhere all at once. It's more that the behavior of these social media hordes represents an anti-democratic, anti-intellectual mindset that is harmful to the cause of art and antithetical to the spirit of movies. Fan culture is rooted in conformity, obedience, group identity, and mob behavior. And its rise mirrors and models the spread of intolerant, authoritarian, aggressive tendencies in our politics and our communal life. End quote. Uh, As anyone who has been a film critic for any length of time will happily tell you, modern fandoms are a genuine problem. You don't want to be one of the first critics to give a beloved property a splat on Rotten Tomatoes. Trust me on that. Uh, Giving a thumbs down to a Marvel movie means you're in the pocket of DC and vice versa. Don't love the Fast and Furious movies? Well, that means you're just a snob who can't turn his brain off and enjoy something silly. Because as we know, that's the role of the critic is to shut off your brain and enjoy the silly things. What is wrong with us? Um, uh, the, the swarms can definitely get a little vicious as someone who is, uh, shall we say, fond of the release the Snyder Cut movement, for instance, that rose up in the wake of Zack Snyder's dimis- dismissal from uh, Justice League. I will admit to wincing every now and then when some of the more strident members of that uh, organization go a little nuts, right? It's it's not good. It's not great. Um, you, you don't win friends that way. Um, but I think what Scott is most tired of, at least from this cohort, is the perversion of criticism from a way to help people understand why they like or dislike uh, a work of art uh, into a tool, a bludgeon, a data point that proves their franchise superior to all other franchises. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it's less an audience guide at this point than a weapon to be deployed in the death struggle between fandoms. It's like a dumber version of the advanced stats that you see in uh, in in sports arguments when people are trying to figure out who's better, Mike Trout or Shohei Otani, right? Uh, the, the lesson, as always, is to simply ignore. Ignore the masses and continue on with your craft. That's the Sunday Bunch guarantee. I don't really care what any of you people think, unless you agree with me, and then you're probably doing something right. Um, Peter, is fandom burning out the best minds of our generation? Well, let's start by... Uh, uh, by I, I, I will start by saying that I really like A.O. Scott as a critic. I, I've never met him. I don't have any kind of personal connection with him, but there aren't many critics who I have read more. In fact, he may be the, the single credit critic who I have read most often since he started uh, in, I believe, 1999 and, and has been writing continuously since then, and that is pretty much my adult life reading movie reviews. And, and he's at the New York Times, but he's also just really good and really perceptive, and I have learned a lot from him. Um, but I do 
find this attitude at least a little bit vexing here. And he has become kind of increasingly cranky over the years, in particular after his review of The Avengers, which is actually has a, a bunch of smart things to say and in many ways was prescient about fandom and about the nature of movies. Um, uh, but he has become a little bit cranky since then. And I, I sense some of his crankiness, uh, you know, sort of some of that uh, that cranky spirit on display here. In that he just sort of seems to think, like, he, he, he finds it, he, he finds fandom too oppressive. And I guess I would say it's oppressive if you let it be. And it's, it's unpleasant at times, um, for sure. And there are absolutely people online and on, on Twitter in particular who act like total jackasses, who are just jerks, who are completely inappropriate, don't seem to be very smart either, at the same time. Discussion of film and the sort of the 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 opportunities we have to talk about movies in smart and intelligent ways, um, in in nuanced ways that don't have anything to do with fandom, that are not just sort of about Team DC and Team Marvel, that are not just about you know this sort of almost politically partisan um, uh, way of approaching movies. I, I feel like there are there are more opportunities than ever if you go and you find them, and that is in large part thanks to the same sorts of tools that have enabled jerk fans. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really glad that, that Scott's going to continue writing. He's going to write more about culture and, and books. And he started, at, he, you know, he, uh, he was a, a book critic, I believe, for The Nation um, before he uh, wrote for the about movies for The New York Times. He's done a bunch of great work on books for The New York Times. So I'm very glad that I will still be able to write, uh, you know, read him and read his writing. I do just sort of wonder if if he has somewhat over invested in and over indexed like the 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 negativity on twitter which is again so easy to do and i get it man there's times when i'm just like boy why do i feel rotten today and the reason is because i spent all day on twitter but maybe the maybe the the thing to do is is not to quit writing about something that you're so good at writing about but instead to say i'm gonna spend some less i'm gonna spend less time on twitter and and value the jackasses on Twitter much less, right? And this is, I think, there is a there is almost a sense here in which I think Scott is letting the bad fans win by saying, "Ah, they have ruined this thing. They have uh, they have made it impossible to have uh, a a good and nuanced and and interesting discourse about movies." And I I guess I just don't think that that's true. I think that they are jerks. I think that there are ugly and unpleasant people online. But I also think that there are places where you can have a have a discussion about movies. There are, frankly, there are places online and there are places offline. You can go out for your, with your friends after a movie and talk about movies. It's great. I do it every now and then. And then, uh, and then sometimes we have a podcast. Hmm. Uh, interesting theory, meeting people outside of the internet. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, the, the, uh, it's interesting to pinpoint that Avengers review. Cause I remember, I remember some of that and it, it, it's, it's interesting for two reasons. One, that's like right in the middle of A.O. Scott's tenure. Almost. It's almost, it's almost smack dab in the middle of his yep. 20, 24 year run or whatever, um, at the, at the New York times. Um, it is, uh, it is also the moment when, Twitter really did kind of take over as the locus of conversation um, for for all of this stuff. Uh, and it is also, again, the moment where comic book franchises became the truly dominant force. I mean, I, you could point back to 2008 with 
um, with the Dark Knight, and there was no. A lot it's of it's the Avengers. About that. But and, I think, and, but I think and if, Scott saw it coming in that review, and he yeah. he argued that it was a kind of imperialism, right? That it was just sort of going to take over the whole movie world, and he wasn't really wrong. I mean, he was more he was certainly more right than wrong. Although at the same time, the other thing that I will say, and I know Alyssa needs to get in here, is that there's a, a pretty startling number in this piece that uh, that you read from Sonny, where he talks about starting as a critic when 400 films a year would open in New York, and now there's over a 1,000 opening in New York on theaters, plus all these streaming movies. So, And in some ways, he is painting a picture of an art form that has never been in better health. And I, I think that's important to recognize that there are, that we aren't seeing in the decline of movies. We are seeing uh, a, a profusion of them, maybe too many movies. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's something that has been on my mind a lot. I've written a lot about sort of cultural fragmentation as an issue. And I probably share a little bit more of Scott's grouchiness, maybe than either of you, um, just in the sense that I've written a lot both about sort of the simultaneous sort of concentration and atomization of pop culture and, you know, have kind of despaired of the low expectations that I think a lot of franchise fans set for themselves and for the properties from which they derive their identities. And so I see sort of two things going on here, right? I mean, you know, I came up in some ways um, as the kind of fan that Scott decries. Like, I was huge into Star Wars. I've talked about, like, writing Star Wars fan fiction on this podcast. Um, you know, that franchise and liking it and thinking about it was a meaningful source of identity for me, sort of in my early teens. Um, and, you know, has informed my pop cultural life going forward in some ways, right? I mean, like, the one of the biggest disappointments for me as an adult has been, you know, Disney's just total failure to do something interesting and sort of forward-looking with Star Wars until, I think, really until Andor, which we talked about earlier this year. Um, or was it late last year? Time is time is a flat circle, guys. I'm not keeping track of things well. Um, and I've been sort of befuddled by the fact that, you know, Marvel and DC fans, um, rather than sort of asking for more and better from their franchises, have instead sort of defended them to the death regardless of the actual quality of the output. And that's been sort of frustrating. But I guess the question I have for both of you is, do you feel like pop cultural conversations have changed? Because, I mean, this podcast focused mostly on um, movies, but I really came up writing a lot about television, um, sort of more, even more so than movies. I, you know, I recap Game of Thrones for, you know, eight years. I, you know, spent a lot of time at the Television Critics Association. And, you know, I sort of had this weird experience in my professional life where television viewership fragmented. Um, the conversation about television got really atomized. There were not sort of rich, deep, you know, mass discussions about some of these shows in a way that there had been earlier in my career. And it felt harder to write about TV. It felt harder to sort of do my job as a cultural critic when that conversation changed. And I do wonder if that's some of what Scott is responding to in movies, in the sense that there are many more movies being released in New York and on streaming platforms than they were when he started. Um, but the audience has concentrated in a few of those releases, and the conversation about those releases 
is in a lot of ways not terribly rich or interesting. Um, and so I I am sympathetic to his sense that, you know, that things have changed and it's maybe not as much fun. Um, and look, you know, I I spend a lot less time on Twitter than either of you or apparently A.O. Scott, judging from that exit interview. Um and I, you know, we do have this space that for me is really fun to discuss all of this stuff. But I don't know. I mean, do you do you feel like there have been sort of some vibe shifts in a way that are recognizable in Scott's portrait of the internet? I don't know. Um, I would say so. Here's here's how I would respond to that. I I, I think that one of the most interesting and frankly bad qualities of the discussion around movies over the last few years um the last real 10 years uh like starting back when you were at think progress Alyssa, um uh is the shift from discussing the work qua work and the uh move toward discussing the work as a measure of trying to figure out if it is uh, good for society or not right if it is if it is a, if it is like e- even setting aside the morality of a piece of work, which I think would be at least kind of interesting, it gets in. We get into these ridiculous, never-ending fights about representation, and is this uh, you know does this have the correct number of people? Is the right sort of person making this story about this group of people? And that 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 sort of talk is so incredibly stultifying and annoying. And frankly, meaningless um, to me that I uh, I find it I find it deeply unpleasant, and I tend to just ignore most of it, which then gets people yelling at me. Like, you know, I I, I tweeted something yesterday or the day before about um, this awful looking Little Mermaid remake, and just just how 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 much I'm dreading the constant. Uh, the the constant drumbeat of idiot culture war fights we're going to be subjected to about this uh, movie, and almost immediately I had somebody in my my quote tweet saying, you know, maybe you should just celebrate the progress this represents. And then, like minutes later, I had somebody saying, yeah, this shows you what happens when Disney goes woke; they go broke. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't fucking handle it. With, yeah. I cannot, I cannot, I, I like, I cannot do enough. I, I feel like A.O. Scott, man. If I have to do another 13 years of this, I'm going to blow my brains out because I just, yeah. I can't, I can't do it. And look, I struggle with this because to a certain extent, this is, this is going to sound like sort of paradoxically hubristic. Like, it's your fault. I feel a little bit responsible you did for this, that Alyssa. <laughs> turn in some ways, in part because I think, you know, look, I came into criticism as someone who found all of this stuff kind of strange and didn't sort of take any of it for granted and was curious about what this stuff was saying about, you know, pop culture was saying about the world and our assumptions of it, the sort of weird default mirror society that it created. And I, you know, I've written a lot about questions of representation and power in the industry over the years. And I think there was an extent to which my blog at Think Progress in my early years at the Washington Post proved that there was a real audience for political criticism. Um, But I don't think, I hope, you know, and I I trust you guys would keep me honest about this, I hope that over the years, you know, I mean, I think back to, for example, the debate about Zero Dark Thirty. Like, I think I was, I hope I was always interested in reading this stuff, you know, as texts, um, as opposed to merely sort of through a quota system. And, you know, I think I, for the 
I think my best writing has continued to look for what's sort of idiosyncratic and, you know, for what a a piece of art is saying that can't necessarily be spoken out loud in the political discourse. Um, so I, I worry sometimes, like, it, it feels so obnoxious to be like, oh, yes, I'm responsible for I'm responsible for all of this. And by all of this, I mean, like, the decline of our cultural conversation. Um, but it is something that I struggle with a little bit. Um, well, there was, and- a, there was that moment, there was that moment in the, like, late aughts, right, where it, it suddenly became very um, uh, profitable is the wrong word, because none of this has ever been profitable. But it, it suddenly became very uh, click friendly to yeah. write pieces like uh, of this sort. Um, and it, it I, I do think I mean, look, I, 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 I obviously, uh, you know, liked your reading enough to be friends with you. So like it worked it it but yeah. but I but I do think that there there was a you uh if we could use uh, the the you know the the French revolution here you know you you built the guillotines and then you got you got led up to it uh Alyssa uh no no I don't know that know. I ever felt specifically guillotined <laughs> but um I think yeah, I, mean, I think I you're think... more like Robert Oppenheimer <laughs> like this is you you built a, a an amazing technology right that just might destroy the world <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, I obviously, I, we're Sonny and I are both fans of your criticism. You yeah. know this, so like, we're not going to come and be like, Alyssa, what did you do? Uh, um, I this is a I I genuinely appreciate this self reflection though, and that's it's it's fascinating to hear all of this. Yeah, you know, and I think look, I think there is room to be to say you're like you know this is weird. This you know, I mean, I did a big series on um, the police and pop culture. Um, six or seven years ago at this point. God, time moves fast. Um, And I think there was genuine value to be like, yeah, you know, this is, there is a real world collaboration between, you know, police departments and Hollywood that's been going on here for a century. These are the images that it produces. And like, they're kind of weird. And, but there's a difference between that and saying like, and therefore none of this stuff is valid or interesting as storytelling. Um, But yeah, no, I look, I think the conversation has changed a lot. I can't entirely blame Scott for wanting to do something different. Um, and I'll be really curious to see what he does with books. Um, but I think that in, you know, the fact that he is leaving this particular stage is a little bit of a bummer just because his astringency and sense of humor and toughness, um, are really valuable. And I hope that even folks who felt stung by that, I mean, that guy can write a kicker, the sort of the last line in um, a review or a column for people who are not journalism nerds, just like nobody else in the business. And I hope that people who felt stung by that retain some of the memory of that and maybe get more open to the insights in his writing over time. Because, you know, I don't think A.O. Scott ever, you know, I always felt like he wanted movies to be their best selves. And, I I hope that we all want that. Um, and yeah. I hope that even the fans who feel compelled to defend stuff, you know, feel like they're allowed to want a little bit better because of, um, because of Scott's work. 
Um, let's uh, let's let's do a slightly different exit question here because I I I remember reading once uh, a a film critic for a daily saying that film critics should have uh, specific ten years and then move on and do something else because you, there's only if you were if you're writing about every big release uh, or you know some percentage of big releases every week you are going to eventually burn out because there's only so many things you have to say um, and I do I get a sense that part of that at least uh, is is one of the reasons why Scott is stepping down. So what if you if you were if you're king, you're king of critics, you're king of the movie critics and you're handing down 10-year lengths. What would your ideal 10-year length be? Like you after 14 years you got to get out and get a get a real job in the world. Uh Peter Oh, I think it's 11 years because I really do think that there are decade long cycles in the movies. And there's a reason that we go back and we rank the, the best movies of the aughts and best movies of the tens because even those, though those are obviously totally artificial distinctions, you can tell a difference between movies made in the aughts and movies made in the tens and ma- movies made in the nineties. And it's, it's real. And if you've watched enough movies, you can just sort of like, you can start to eyeball films, even that aren't period films, even that aren't set in the 1990s. And you can just say that was made obvious sometime around within a year or two of 1986 right and it there are just there are visual tonal stylistic distinctions so i think critics should get one decade and one year and so you should be able to sort of either right you're you're starting in in a previous period and then you you go through a full decade after that or you know we, we can think of this as a decade plus one more year to reflect back on the decade that you that you wrote on so i but i i think it's you, an 11-year tenure is the right one if we're going to do tenure. But I also think that it's useful to have people who have been writing about movies for 40 years and have seen everything uh, you know, uh, over that time and have reflected on it professionally. So I don't think there should be movie critic tenure. Alyssa? Um, I'd say if I had to impose tenure, I'd expand on Peter's idea and say 15 years, but you have to begin um, in sort of a five-year mark. So you can actually observe the vibe shifts coming in and going out with the tides. Uh, I will, I will, uh, destroy my own question by saying no tenure. Uh, (laughs) we should, critics should get older and crankier and, uh, keep, keep young people in their letterboxed feeds for as long as possible. No, no real jobs for young people. We're going to take these forever. Stanley Kaufman wrote movie reviews for the New Republic from 1958 through 2013. Yeah. Love it. I I love it. Like. This is this I I love I love picking through my collections of John Simon uh, reviews, yeah. which stretch from like the the you know late sixties I think or maybe early seventies up through two thousand and ten or so. Like it just it's it's there is something there. I I agree. I think there's something to be said for having um, real uh, continuity of thought. Um, but that said, I do think I I think any any tenure should be self imposed. When you when you get to the point where you're feeling like I can't watch another one of these this specific type of movie that's it that's when you've got to you got to set aside and i do think that there are a lot of critics who have kind of hit that with the current cycle of superhero movies if we saw a wave of retirements might not be the worst thing in the world all right uh make sure to swing by bulwark plus for our bonus episode this week on the great lance reddick who died at the sadly young age of 60 last week uh we're gonna have a little tribute to him this week on the bonus episode. Uh, now on to the main event, The Last of Us, 
HBO's hit series based on the video game of the same name concluded last week. When I say a hit, I do mean it's a hit. Uh, According to HBO, the first six episodes were watched by more than 30 million viewers each on average, which is better than the Game of Thrones prequel, uh, House of the Dragon. Um, The premiere has been watched by around 40 million people across all platforms, according to HBO. Of course, all of these stats are kind of with a grain of salt because they're measuring HBO Max, HBO Linear, uh, you know, HBO Go, and now if those are still a thing, I don't even know. Um, But is it any good? It's a hit, but is it any good? Uh, After all, The Walking Dead routinely put up huge numbers with audiences despite being pretty mediocre. A very good laundry folding show. And The Last of Us plays in some way like a fancier, more expensive version of The Walking Dead. You can see the difference between an HBO budget and an AMC budget up there on the screen, both in terms of the settings. You know, we go across the country in this show from the ruins of Boston to a burnout Kansas City to the Mountain West. Um, And in terms of the acting talent, that Pedro Pascal, he can really do a wince. He winces very convincingly. Um, Spoilers coming up for this first season. So if you haven't finished season one yet... Uh, sign off. Just hit that hit that pause button. We'll be here till you get when you get back. We'll be. I'm just giving. I'm rambling, letting giving people a little time. All right. Um, Pascal plays Joel. He's a grieving father who lost his daughter early in the days of the rise of the Cordyceps, which are kind of like a mushroom-like uh, infection that turns humans into murderous savages who want nothing more than to spread their fungi to all corners of the globe. Uh, Joel is tasked with delivering Ellie, who's played by Bella Ramsey, to a group of rebel scientists who think they can use her immunity to the Cordyceps to help keep humanity safe from the mushroom-infected monsters. But who will keep humans Safe from the humans. That's right. This is a zombie show, which means that the real danger isn't the zombies, but the people who are not yet zombies. Uh, from the tyrannical Fedra to the moronic fireflies to the cannibalistic preachers to the wandering raiders, the real danger in the zombie apocalypse is man. This is uh, why the key theme throughout the show's first season, uh, the lesson that is literally stated out loud in the third episode, which mostly concerns itself uh, with a flashback in which Nick Offerman, who's playing kind of a gay Ron Swanson, finds love over the course of 20 years, um, is that saving the world is probably impossible, but protecting your own, your own corner of it is something that can be accomplished. It's what we see over and over again in the show as people fight to protect and avenge their loved ones, even if it means bringing ruin to everyone else. Um, this brings us to the big moral quandary in the season finale. Again, spoilers, etc. Uh, but when Joel and Ellie finally get to the Firefly doctors who think they can devise a cure from her uh, infected body, Joel learns that they want to cut Ellie's brain out. Want to cut her brain out of her head. Make a serum that might, perhaps, p- possibly, uh, make people who have not yet been infected uh, by the cordyceps invisible to the cordyceps. Joel objects to this plan. Uh, by murdering every everyone in the hospital, just about, almost everyone. Uh, and then he lies to Allie about what happened to protect her and make her not worry about, uh, you know, all the, the murdering. Now, obviously, uh, Joel did nothing wrong here. Joel is, Joel was totally right in his ob- in his actions. But that's only obvious, apparently, because I have kids. Interesting anecdote shared by game creator and co-showrunner Neil Druckmann in the Companion podcast. When they tested the game, half of the players uh, had kids and half were childless. The childless half split 50-50 on whether or not Joel was the hero or the villain of that sequence and really the whole game. Uh, you know, 50-50 said, 50% said hero, 50% said villain. Uh, of the half of the players who had children... Every single player, every single player said Joel was right. Alyssa, we've talked in the past about how parenting changes uh, the experience of art. 
Do you think that Joel uh, did nothing wrong in that sequence? Or are you going to go against the 100%? No, um, I find Joel's decision-making pretty explicable um, in that moment. And I say this as a parent whose kids are actually enrolled in a Pfizer clinical trial for the COVID vaccine for young kids, right? Like, I'm willing to do a certain amount of medical experimentation on my children, obviously, but it doesn't involve cutting their brains out. And also, like, we know it, we're like, we're pretty sure it's going to work and be useful. And... The combination of, like, we're going to cut your brain out without, like, adequate informed consent. Like, Ellie can't consent to having her brain cut out. First off, she's 14 years old. And also, like, just in general, there's no, like, moral way to, like, consent to having your brain cut out for the good of society. And also, we have no idea if this is going to work, right? Like, it's not even a cure. It's not even, like, a vaccine. It's like, maybe this makes you invisible to the fungus monsters who wander our landscape. (coughs) And so, I mean, it, and I, in a way, the fact that Joel seems so obviously right illustrates the extent to which the show seems stacked and therefore less interesting to me, right? Like, the Fireflies don't come across as, like, a particularly compelling or competent organization. Um, idiots. They're idiots. Yeah, like, they're, you know, they they seem sort of ramshackle and amoral and without sort of a larger program or scientific operation. It's not clear that it's going to work. Um, And so in a way, you know, the sort of obviousness of Joel's decision, again, if you're a parent, I think reflects a pretty strong weakness in the show, which is that there is not, you know, sort of a strong set of moral alternatives posed against each other, right? I mean, your society is either like, you know, we're a peaceful commune in the Mountain West or like... We're in like an adorable, weird gay couple in our like own private island, or like you're cannibals eating people in the woods or fascists, right? And there's just, there is not sort of a plausible clash of ideas happening in the show in a way that made it just sort of only intermittently interesting to me. Um, I like all the performances in this, you know, Pedro Pascal is good, Bella Ramsey is good, like. Um, I, I am enjoying the Game of Thrones reunion, um, but I just did not find the show terribly engaging. Um, and that may also be that I'm just like burned out on kids in danger and apocalypse stuff. But it it feels like it did not feel sort of terribly intellectually engaging to me. And the road trip nature of it, um, I think, prevents it from getting deeper in a way that would be more interesting. I will, uh, Peter, before we hop to you real quick, I will say that my, that was also kind of my overall sense of the show is that there, there were moments that were pretty, pretty good. I really liked the, the, uh, episodes four and five, the, the episodes with Henry, the, uh, the two brothers, yeah. um, in Kansas City. Uh, I thought that was, that was pretty compelling. I, I liked, um, uh, I really, I actually did really like the finale, uh, but everything else was kind of like, I was kind of like, okay, all right, let's, I get it. The zombie apocalypse is bad because of the people. This is the thing we see in all the zombie shows. It's all of them. From Dawn of the Dead to 28 Days Later, all of them. That's that's the problem. Um, Peter, what what did you make of The Last of Us? Well, after the zombie apocalypse, you're not going to have Twitter. 
So all the bad fans are going to end up becoming, you know, raiders and cannibals and become literal zombies. They're going to be literal zombies and Fedra employees and uh, you know, stupid uh, uh, Firefly radicals who you think are the heroes, but no, they they think they're the heroes who are rebelling against the authority. But now they're just they're just a bunch of disorganized kind of quasi half terrorists, right? Like that's this is just a show about where the bad fans go. As far as I can tell, I I really so are like we this. pro are we pro the cordyceps then like do, <laughs> are we pro the zombie apocalypse? No, means no I'm not pro cordyceps. No, I'm, I'm pro I'm pro Joel murdering people who who cross him. That's what I'm pro. So that's that's the only that's the only righteousness in a world that has fallen the ability to murder your enemies. I, I talked about this show with um, a large uh, number of people. Uh, over the past week uh, at some events that I was at um, in part because I've written about it in part because people were just interested. It's a hit. People have, have seen it. And because I also have played the game. Sonny, I believe you played the 2013 I've not, game. I've not played it. No. Okay. So I've I'm the only one here who has played the source material, the, the, the source game. And this, the, the show follows the story of that game uh, pretty closely with some, some notable diversions in particular, the Nick Offerman episode is really blown up from what you see in the game. Uh, and then the, um, the arcade sort of backstory uh, about Ellie. That sequence is not in the original game, though it is uh, in uh, a sort of spin-off game. Uh, but if you just played the 2013 game straight through, you wouldn't have seen it. So uh, I, I was just impressed by the translation. I think this is certainly one of the better, maybe the single best video game adaptation I have uh, ever watched myself. Um, and the game is one of my favorite games of all time. So I found I found Joel's choice I think a little more interesting than you guys because to me it was a kind of inversion of uh of what you see so often in very uh, in 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 genre stories or sort of popular storytelling where the hero survives where the heroes survive by uh by doing their duty to the collective by engaging in a kind of heroic self-sacrifice. And the easy example here, the the go-to, is at the end of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, right? Uh, Spock Spock allows himself, uh, he, he gives up his own life um, so that the rest of the crew of the Enterprise can survive. He says, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's, you know, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or the, the fewer the one, uh, right? And... And we're supposed to understand that his moral code and his logical, uh, you know, sort of uh, approach to this is uh, it, it's reasonable. Um, it makes sense. And it's and it is a it is through that code that everybody lives. And this show inverts that. And that is something that you don't see very often in popular storytelling. You almost never see a show that says, actually, you're not a monster if you don't sacrifice yourself to save society. Actually, it, it is at least understandable. And I think the show doesn't quite offer a, a full-fledged argument or defense of Joel, right? It sort of allows you to, to consider his actions. At the same time, what it, it doesn't, uh, what it doesn't do is it doesn't sort of simply and black and whitely portray him as a mon- as obviously a monster. And, you know, Sonny thinks he's obviously the hero here. So Alyssa's more or less on, on his side, or at least thinks it's, it's reasonable. But this is, this is to me, I think a, a pretty unusual kind of examination of the morality of what in what individuals owe to the people they love and then what individuals owe to people they don't know and who are you know and and to people who are sort of to to the rest of society and you see this all throughout the show 
Uh, you see this in particular in the the Kansas City sequence. Uh, you also see this, you know, to some extent. This is you you see a a, a sort of a world in which the in which the collective, uh, as um, as understood through Fedra, right, uh, is is just sort of like that's a that's the the remnants of the government, and basically it's it's. Uh, oppressive and totalitarian right and like you just gotta take care of yourself that's the only thing you can do take care of yourself and the people that you know and that you care about and it's a to me that's a that is a a, a rarely explored uh moral territory in popular storytelling and i thought the show that pulled it off really well um, i was actually surprised by how many people i talked to uh, over the past week who thought that joel was uh, was actually was kind of a villain here that they could both understand how he had become this way and also that they thought man killing everybody that seems real bad maybe you're trying to like sneak off with ellie maybe right like but you're just gonna go in and shoot the doctor and what's i mean and again what's interesting here is in the game uh, in the game, you walk in and you know you've got you've you've been through this big firefight where you're making a bunch of like tactical shooting choices in a video game style way, and if you go in to the room with the doctor and Ellie, you can't not shoot the doctor. The game won't let you. It is you have to make the choice yourself in some sense, right? You have to pull the trigger or press the button. But the game won't let you avoid shooting him, even though he's not like rushing to kill you. He's not there with a scalpel trying to get right. He's just like the the game is just like, nope, you're Joel's real mad. You're playing him real mad and you're not going to shoot that guy. And so this is a it is in, in the game. In, in some ways, it's even more powerful because it forces you to inhabit that choice and forces you to make it yourself. Um, and I thought the show did a, as good a job as you can do on television um, where you're where it's a little more removed and you're just telling a story of putting people in Joel's shoes and helping them understand that choice and making it seem like, if not a correct one, at least a reasonable one, at least one that you can understand. And that, that's, I think that's, there's something, there's something unusual and powerful about that. Yeah. Again, I was, I was just struck by the, I was struck by that anecdote from Druckmann yeah. uh, uh, about the testing. And I'm, I'm frankly not surprised. I mean, I like, I literally, I watched that episode and I, I tweeted something like, you know, the, the only way that you could be conflicted about this is if you don't have kids without having listened to that podcast without, you know, and like 20 people immediately were like, ah, yeah, Druckmann said the same thing as like, this is a, this is, a, this is an actual phenomenon. Um, and I do think it, I think it, uh, it really does change things. I mean, I, 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 it's interesting you mentioned choice and the kind of illusion of choice in the video game, Peter, because it, 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 it does feel like I, this is, this has always been my complaint about games that kind of prize this idea of choice. Oh, the player's making choices. Uh, or is he actually just being, being played, right? You get some of this in the Bioshock games. Right. There are games um, about this question. Um, and I like I've always thought it was kind of silly because you're playing a game and the game can only really unfold one way. I mean, it is very much like a movie in that sense, um, unless you're playing a like a purely open ended world without any any sort of I like I don't even know what a game would look like without without choice um, or I'm sorry that that, that didn't per, like curtail your choices that didn't didn't say you have to go this way. Um so I don't know. I like there are also, games that I'm are also... extremely open ended, but The Last of Us, uh, both of the these those games are ex- are quite linear. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting also that we're making so much of Joel's choice and not talking about the way that the show. And I, again, I don't know how the game handles this. Um, 
treats Ellie's choice, right? Because, I mean, she's presented with this situation that's like, oh, you know, um, it's like, there, there is no explanation of, like, any consequences for her, um, to her at any point. You know, she's had this experience in Kansas City where, you know, she hopes that her blood is going to be this cure, and it's not. But, um, you know, the, the show is much more interested, I think, in Joel's choice than in Ellie's choice in consent. And I think that's, again, sort of challenging for the show, given that the final moments are supposed to draw their significant emotional power from the sense that her consent may have been violated in some meaningful way. Um, I think that's fair. Well, uh, is- I would also just say, though, that I have played the second game as well, and the second season is we're to understand it's going to be closely based on the second game and there will be there will be more focus on Ellie and there will be some consequences yeah i mean i like i i understand the same thing i haven't actually played the game but i i understand the same thing my my uh i mean my 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 only problem with that is again like 14 year old child can't consent to to surgery on her own that involves uh, the removal of major organs like say brains like can't that that's just not a thing um so i don't really have a problem with uh violating her you know her her consent there or even lying to her about it afterward i like i'm i'm okay with the lie like ch- you lie to children all the time that's, oh i don't have a problem fine. with it i don't have a problem with it either and i think like even in that sense like if Ellie had known what was going to happen and Joel overrode it. That would have been the correct decision. But the the show is just not that interested in sort of what Ellie understands is going to happen to her versus the reality. Um, and, you know, and in general, that's not sort of a through line that the show sort of foreshadows or explores very well, um, which, again, to me, just kind of dilutes some of what it ends up doing. Uh, exit question here. Do we do we think that we are hitting the? Uh, uh, we're, I feel like we're hitting an inflection point in terms of video game adaptations. The same inflection point we hit with comic book movies around the time of uh, I don't know the first Sam Raimi Spider Man, where we're we're about to get a bunch of things that are pretty good or at least competent, um, and will be oversold as like genuinely great. Because we've been waiting for like a decent adaptation of something from the video game world for so long, um, and partly I think that's unfair because it ignores the great Resident Evil movies. We, you know, we we've had good comic book adaptations, but I do like between this, between The Last of Us being a huge hit, between the Super Mario Brothers movie potentially being the highest grossing film of the year, which I think is very much in play, judging by some of the tracking numbers we've seen. Um, uh, I, I really feel like we are we are about to get inundated with video games. They're real. They're, you can make real movies out of them now. Style arguments. I also think it's interesting. I mean, you're also seeing more pop culture about video games, right? I mean, we're seeing like Mythic Quest, which Sunny and I like quite a bit. Um, you know, um, Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which was one of the big literary hits of last year, and it's quite good. I don't know if either of you have read it yet, um, but I really enjoyed it. But it's interesting that, you know, there is this sense that cultural affirmation doesn't quite arrive until you've been adapted into, you know, a a truly outstanding movie or television show, which says something interesting to me about the place of video games 
in mass culture, even though they're so ascendant, arguably sort of the dominant art form, there's still this kind of lingering need for validation by other media that I find kind of fascinating. Oh, so you mean it's exactly like comic book and comic comic books and comic book fans then? Yeah. I, I, I think that's a, a fair comparison in a lot of ways. And what happened with comic books in particular was that you finally had a generation of, you know, uh, creators in their 40s or even 50s who had grown up reading comic books but were themselves uh, pretty smart and sophisticated folks who were able to sort of take those kind of four-color, you know, uh, goofy comic book experiences and make them something more, right? And and figure out ways to adapt them that weren't just sort of like, let, that didn't treat them as kind of, as junk. And that's Craig Mason. And there's a New Yorker piece about um, how he ended up working with Neil Druckmann on, uh, on this, uh, on the show. And, and it was, you know, a combined frustration from the two of them, both who are both of whom are, you know, high level um, storytellers who have been doing, you know, who've been working for a, a couple decades at this point. Uh, and both of them were like, it's like the people who have adapted video games have for the most part not understood like what the difference is between film and video games and how to and how to make that translation in a way that's going to actually produce something that's 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 quite good. Um, and Craig Mazin has at least one more coming up very soon. Um, he is the writer on Eli Roth's adaptation of Borderlands, which is a great big open world kind of comic shooter game uh, or game franchise. Uh, there's no release date on that yet, but it stars, of all people, Kate Blanchett. Lydia Tarr is going to be an Eli Roth's video game adaptation, folks. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Last of Us? Peter? It's very good. Thumbs up. Alyssa? Lukewarm thumbs up. Uh, thumbs up, but I, I'm I'm with with Alyssa a little more a little more lukewarm. Uh, it's it it really did feel a lot like The Walking Dead, just kind of slower and also prettier. So you know, all right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>